Welcome to Your Teen with Sue and Steph. I'm Sue. And I'm Steph, and we are the co-founders and owners of Your Teen Media, the resource for parenting tweens and teens. And today, we're going to be talking with Dr. Megan Moss, Assistant Professor in Human Development and Family Studies at Michigan State University, an expert in teen sexuality. Okay, we are in for a topic today. Steph and I are, we're going to just hit it head on, I think. Are we going to? I think so. I'm making googly <laughs> eyes at Sue, which no one can see. Yes. Yes. Okay, so first of all, I'll just start off by saying that I sucked at this. Same, just to alleviate any pressure you feel, same. I wasn't feeling pressure because I've done enough anecdotal research to know and to read about that so few of us actually do a great job when it comes to this. But I know that Megan is going to help us feel better about ourselves because she has a very different approach. And so you're just going to learn so much when you get to hear from her. And it it's very soothing. It, it kind of takes a teeny bit of the discomfort away from us. Not the responsibility, but the discomfort. I've been trying to think back to my kids and where I did well and where I went wrong. <laughs> I don't have so many examples of doing well. How about you? Do you have a do I, well? Uh, the only one I have, I, here's what I'll say. I came out strong. <laughs> the early years, I came out really strong. And then I just fell down. And I was sharing a story with Sue earlier when, when our oldest Zach was a little over five. He was about to have, he had already had one sibling and I was getting close to giving birth (laughs) with our uh, daughter. So he was in kindergarten and we had been talking a lot about, you know, not when he was three, I don't remember so much dialogue, but certainly when he was five with this sibling, there were a lot of questions. And the questions had kind of died down by the time I was close to when she was due. So we had Lane in November and then my parents came in to meet her she was a few days old, probably. And he hadn't asked any questions in months. And we're sitting at the dining room table just having a meal. And Zach, out of nowhere, just says, so wait a minute, the penis goes in the vagina? And my dad was like, okay, can someone pass the potatoes? Like, it was so random. <laughs> and so we had talked a lot uh, at that time, but it was so, like, mechanical, and there was none of the emotion, and it was just kind of explaining how it happened, almost like a science experiment. Because I was kind of like, I'm as surprised as you that a penis <laughs> going into a vagina results in a human being. And and for us, three times, and Sue, for you, five times. I mean, I think I think it is a miracle to get pregnant. It's a miracle. It's unbelievable. I'm always like, it that is. leads to that? Right? Yeah. No, it is. Mm. It, there's nothing more miraculous than mm-hmm. having a baby. I but, totally um, agree. But Zach might be at his, might have been a, at his smartest moment at that point. Like, it no doesn't question, get at least he's most educated. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> at least. Yeah. And then nothing. Then just yeah. nothing. Didn't do so, so well in those teen years. I, I would have to agree that those younger years, I felt empowered. I, I actually <laughs> yeah. felt maybe even a little arrogant that I was so <laughs> good. Same. At have, but there's something about a kid who knows nothing. I, of course, am smarter. Yeah, sure. So in my house, I'm sure I've revealed this many times because it's the one truth I know in my family that I was the strictest mother with my firstborn. Like she was 13 before she watched a PG-13 movie. Mm. And um, I thought sex was a discussion that you had, like the, the, not the mechanics of it, but the conversation about it was a conversation you had when your kid was older. And so I remember my oldest coming home and telling me, all she had learned from her friends, who were all youngest kids in their family. Oh, yeah. 
I felt really annoyed at those other parents for raising children who knew so much at too young an age and then ruined my plan. So then I have another kid and another and, you know, a few more. And my fourth kid knows about everything a little bit after birth, you know, the conversation in the house has changed and there's there's just no getting around what yeah. is being talked about and what books people are reading and what TV people are watching. And so I get a call from her best friend's mother and she says, in a somewhat lighthearted way, but I heard my own self in the story. So um, my kid knows all about sex now. And I was like, wow, that's cool. How'd she learn? And she said, your daughter. <laughs> Karma's a bitch. <laughs> it is inevitable. It is inevitable. It, yeah. All right. Anything else we should be talking about? An obvious topic to me is like, why is it just so hard? You know, after like, like I think you and I had similar experiences. We both came out strong. We had good information. And then... Is it, I don't know if it, was I scared of the questions? Was I just getting so uncomfortable because it it was no longer like the mechanical explanation of what sex is? And and we're going to be talking to Megan about this, but, you know, the emotional piece and what, and what that looks like and what, it maybe because it went from being kind of just what sex is, <laughs> mechanical, to values and emotions and all the things that maybe... I just wasn't comfortable with or wasn't, I don't know, maybe just forming them. And so then having to have that conversation felt so much heavier. I was thinking when you asked the question, what's my answer to that? And I don't think I had the same experience as you in that way, but it's around the same topic, which is that I'm just never 100% convinced that it's my right mm. or responsibility to be having those conversations when they're older. Like, it is, and, and I, I'm sure I feel that way because my kids let me know that it was not my right or responsibility. Yeah. But they were, they shut me down so quickly when I would try to say, like, you know, even if they were dating somebody or it, it was just like, do I ask those questions? Do I talk about like safety? That's easy enough, right? Yeah. Like, do you know that you need to wear a condom, that your partner needs to wear a condom? Like, what? That, those are easy conversations, but the kind of be kind and and be respectful. I I just am not convinced that that's a converse. How do you head? How do you like go head on with a conversation about that? Isn't it more how we live and the conversations we have after watching a movie, which I think Megan is going to clarify mm -hmm. and agree with. But I think part of why I you know arguably on paper dropped the ball is because I just wasn't 100% convinced. I don't know. Yeah. No, that's so funny. As you were talking, I was thinking to myself, aren't we getting, I don't know, maybe it's, maybe it's just an excuse for not doing a good job. Right. <laughs> but aren't right. We, 100%. It might be. Um, aren't we getting those values and sharing those values? Like you said, I thought in just the day-to-day, -day, you know, like just how we treat each other and the things we say and what we do as a family and what's important. And so do those conversations, those same values conversations, do they have to be wrapped around sex? And maybe maybe the answer is absolutely they have to be wrapped around that because they should be wrapped around every, I don't know, every, I don't know. I'll be curious to, you know, see what she says about that. Or you and I are just not comfortable getting less than an A plus on it. <laughs> on any assignment. And we don't like the fact that we may have both just gotten like a D. 
So I have to be honest. I um I have more comfort with not getting an A plus than you might have. <laughs> yeah. On so, this topic or in general? No, in life. In yeah. life, for sure. Okay. It is a, a really challenging conversation to have. No one seems to do it so easily. And so we're really looking forward to hearing what Dr. Megan Mass is going to tell us and how she's going to make it, you know, a little, just a little more doable for all of us without all of this pressure of getting it wrong over and over again. Up next is our conversation with Megan. We can't wait for you to join us. Hello, podcast fans. Want to get weird with us? Come check out the Mad Scientist podcast. We are a weekly show that looks at the history, philosophy, and hard facts behind your biggest paranormal questions. Did the government really pay for a psychic spy program? Yes. Is it true that surgery got its start in grave robbing? Yes. Can a roller coaster really kill you? Legally, we can't say so for sure, but sometimes, yes! Join myself, Chris Cogswell, and my co-host, Marie Mayhew, as we examine the science, philosophy, and history behind the strange and unusual. All to discover what's possible and plausible versus what's, well, just made up. Check us out wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Mad Scientist Podcast. Okay, so I am starting with the best news for parents who might be like I was when it comes to teaching my kids about sex and talking about it with them. Because today, Dr. Megan Maas says that parents don't need to be sex educators. (laughs) Yes! We're not off the hook, though. We need to be sex socializers. So, Megan, first of all, my biggest thank you to you. But now, can you tell us what actually that means? Of course, yeah. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, so it just basically means that you don't need to worry about information that you don't know. So you don't need to worry about, you know, all the different types of contraception and STIs and, you know, what am am I supposed to say in terms of that? You're just modeling reaction, emotion, you know, behavior to a certain extent. So you're just trying to communicate that, Sex is normal and we're cool with it in terms of talking about it. And, you know, we have these values and this is what I know. This is what I don't know. Lots of people don't know a lot about sex. So there's different ways that we can learn about it. And so I'm learning it with you kind of a thing to just sort of model that this is a communication process. And it's, it's not a, I know everything. And so you need to ask me. And then if I don't know something, then I failed. All right, so Megan, that is mostly good news. But if we are not the ones that are doing the educating, can you tell us what those resources look like and where our kids will find them? Sure. So 
usually there are some type of reproductive health coordinator or health educator at the school or associated with your school district. And so you can always get into contact with them or tell, you know, your teenager that they're they're allowed to contact them directly with questions that they have. And then there's a ton of great online resources. So I recommend like Advocates for Youth and Scarletine are two kind of top ones. And so you can look those resources up ahead of time and see how comfortable you feel with them and show your teen how to be connected to them. And if you do use filtering software and things like that, you have to make sure you manually allow those kind of educational websites. Is there like a book or two books that you recommend that we can actually like, it's an easy way to to address it with your kid, but not actually have a conversation? Sure. So 30 Days of Sex Talks by Educate and Empower Kids is a great resource because they have them for different age groups, but one for for teens is great. And there's lots of books that I recommend. I have a list of them on my website. I mean, that that aren't written by me, but are... um, from colleagues or people that I don't know, but I love them. Robbie Harris is a really great author of children's books about sex and gender and where babies come from. But for teenagers, for parents of for exactly. So, but there is, but she does have a book for teens as well. So great, I recommend that. You mentioned in your opening that we should share our family values with our kids. What does it mean? I think most of us know what our family values are as it relates to sex. We share them with our kids and then they listen, right? <laughs> Gosh, we we wish, right? I mean, think of how many times you have to like remind your kid to flush the toilet or change the toilet. You know what I mean? Like we have to continually talk to them about all sorts of things. And sex is no exception or in romantic relationships, gender, bodies, all of that kind of thing. So one of the things that I encounter both in research and in my like real life, you know, educational practice with parents is this idea that like parents really want to think that they can control their teens' sexual experiences or that they can protect them. And of course we want to protect our kids. It's really hard to think of them as sexual beings. It's all just very like, oh, do we really have to do this? And for folks that have, you know, very specific, clear values about, you know, sex is until marriage or it's until college or it's until, you know, you're in a really committed relationship, just know that those are values you can communicate, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you're kid is going to internalize that value. And we know that for kids who do delay sex until adulthood, that is like something that they really value themselves. And they have, you know, really intense goals and and a really like detailed plan about how to either avoid sex or to only engage in, you know, kissing or making out, but they know how to, you know, stop when it comes to oral sex or something. And so there's a lot of skills to be taught. But that value piece shouldn't be ignored, but it shouldn't stop there. And I think extending the respect to your teen by saying, I know that you're your own person. I hope that you share these values, but I'd rather you talk to me and feel comfortable, you know, bringing something up if you're dealing with something, than be afraid that 
I am going to punish you or that I, that something negative is going to happen because it's inconsistent with my values. So can we just be clear that we were kids once also and that our parents imposing what they thought was an absolute was not necessarily the way our lives played out. So how we, we forget that as parents today. We literally think that we have the power to tell them, these are our family values, and so if you break them, this will happen. How effective is that? It's not effective at all. I mean, as you can imagine, you know, if you had parents who told you not to do something, it's a, it's a small percentage of, of teens who really do fear their parents and will actually not you know, engage in something that they don't want them to engage in. Usually it's that they do it, they just try to hide it better, right? And so you don't want them to feel like they have to hide everything about their romantic or sexual experiences. Because then if they are being coerced, if they're in an unhealthy relationship, if they do, you know, end up pregnant or get someone else pregnant, they're not going to come to you. And those are serious issues that you want to be able to help, you know, them navigate if if they do end up in those situations. And so punishment is just a big message to them that I can't go anywhere near mom or dad about this topic. If something bad happens to me, I got to go to my friends or some somebody else. That's excellent. So let's talk about a topic that if I failed on having the talk, or maybe I didn't fail based on what you've said, the only thing I did worse on <laughs> was having the porn conversation. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, how do we talk to our kids about that? It's so hard. Oh, yeah. And that's changed. I mean, so sex, you know, of course, been going on for millions of years. Uh, (laughs) And even though our social norms around it have changed and porn has been around for a long time, too. But, you know, that's really more what we would refer to as like erotica. So pictures of naked people or video of them having sex or art, you know, depicting sex. But now with the internet, we have tube site porn, which is run just like YouTube and has, you know, everything from quote unquote, amateur, mutually pleasurable, respectful sex to incest and, you know, forced, forced sex and rough sex. And unfortunately, that means we have to talk about porn more than we did in the 80s or 90s when the porn conversation could just be like, there's these adult magazines, there's dirty magazines, or there's what you know, whatever videos that we, like I joke around, that we would, you know, search in our parents' sock drawers and stuff for or to try to find some magazine. Now it's just, you, you can't even avoid it, especially if you're a teen because of all the sharing that's going on. I would start off with laying the foundation about sex what sex is, what it's not, relationships, and really focusing on that human piece so that that is there to refer to when you're talking about the commodification of sex, which is porn. It's it's sex turned into a product. And a lot of it is sex that exploits women and particularly young women. And so they really kind of have to have a foundational knowledge before you can start talking about those kinds of, you know, aspects about porn to get them think to get them thinking differently about it. Is the conversation the same with boys and girls about porn? I would say so. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of um, parents today 
or at least who I come in contact with, they really kind of think of it as a boy issue and as something like that they're going to need to address with the boys or they're so glad that they have girls so they don't have to address it. But we know that, you know, girls get aroused, girls masturbate, not at the same frequency um, as boys do, but it's there. And we also know that, um, you know, when we see pornography, when most people see pornography, and this is done in laboratory settings, you get sexually aroused. It's like an automatic response, regardless of whether or not you sort of agree psychologically or morally with the material, it's just sort of a response. Similarly to how if you touch genitals, they react, they're very sensitive. It's part of a response. And so I think also just talking about how our bodies can respond to those things makes can make us feel embarrassed or yucky. This is for younger teens, you know, like 13, 14, versus the older ones who are going to be intentionally going for it. But really talking about how our bodies can react to those things. And that's why we want to talk about why there's a bunch of stuff on the internet that you probably don't want to expose yourself to because you don't want to to make those associations between what you're watching and how your body's reacting because that's going to make you feel uncomfortable. And you can just say, there's research on this. I listen to this podcast. Like, you just throw me under the bus. Like, do whatever you have to do. But I think I I know just from talking with hundreds of of college students, most semesters in my human sexuality class, they wished that they had a parent who either knew or acknowledged or would say like, hey, here's this thing that we know is out there and that you have unlimited access to. And this is how you need to know how your brain reacts to it, how your body's going to react to it, because... We want you to have healthy, safe, mutually pleasurable experiences, you know, throughout your life. Okay, so I want to step back for a second. And I remember when I was walking with a friend one time and her she had a, a boy in early high school and with complete confidence said her son does not masturbate. And I remember being like, Wow. I just, I mean, I can't speak to your boy, but that's not the way I learned about this stuff. But hey, so I'm, I want to tell you that I don't believe my kids have watched porn. So tell me that I, I am this woman, but it's not about that. It's about this. Like I literally walk around thinking there's no way my kids have watched porn, which of course, based on the statistics is not likely. So can you share with <laughs> us the statistics? <laughs> sure. So by the age of 17, 90% of boys and 60% of girls have at least seen porn. Now that might not be intentional. It might not even be more than once, but it's happened. The statistics on it are all over the place because we can't, the quality of a study that we would need to get reliable statistics is really hard to do because as you can imagine, people, parents don't want their kids participating in studies <laughs> where some researcher like me is asking them about porn and masturbation and sex. And, you know, so the statistics are pretty cons- on the conservative side in terms of the high- higher quality studies um, because they are more vague. The ones that are a little bit more specific have smaller samples that we can't necessarily rely as much on. But the 8 to 11 crowd is more like between 10 and 30% have seen porn. Which is still a lot. It's yeah. still a lot. 
So you can kind of assume that by age 16, about a third of, of teens are seeing porn very regularly. And about a third aren't. And then about a third are sort of seeing it every now and again. There's a small chance, Sue, that your kids really, there is. I heard 10%. It's not 100%. Sue. It's, yeah. I heard 10%. If exactly. you want to hang your head so on something. They're probably in that 10%. So I'm My sure you're just fine. My kids are overachievers, so they might be in. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I think, I think I'm clear on what we should be talking to, to them about as far as porn goes. But what do you feel is most important for us to teach them? And, and thinking about it in the context, like, when they hear this from their mom, from their dads, does that affect their ability to enjoy sex in life? Are they going to associate that like we have, well, now mom has talked to me about it. And now what does that look like? So I guess I'm, I'm trying to understand what, what are, you know, if we had a checklist of what I'm supposed to be teaching them, what would that look like? What would be on there? Well, the first thing you want to communicate is that sex is amazing. And it's great because you're competing with porn and Hollywood and everything. And so usually they expect parents and schools and churches and stuff to just say, like, if you get sex, you're going to get pregnant. It's going to ruin your life. You're going to get this. You're going to get HIV and die. Like, it's going to be horrible, you know, and that's Mm -hmm. sort of it. Right. And then you're supposed to get married and it's supposed to be amazing and (laughs) have babies and, you know, never have any problems. So starting off with that sort of like amazing piece, but then there's also um, talking to them about how eventually it will become this thing that is kind of boring. You will have so much access to sex (laughs) that you will be turning it down because you won't feel in the mood. So there's no rush. Like there's no prize at the end. You know, there's, there's... There's no award for having more sexual partners or having sex earlier. Like, it's great, but it's always going to be there. Because that sort of gives the the message that, like, oh, wow, so they're they're comfortable with this. And, you know, and it kind of gives them permission to either be into it or not be into it. You know, there's so much gendered stuff around sex. And I feel like there's a lot of messages that that are sent out there through media and and peers and, and such that I think parents are really the only source that can kind of mitigate some of that. So really, you know, teaching sons, heterosexual sons, like you're not entitled to sex if, you know, you spent money on her, you took her on a date, if she's kissing you, if she's, if you're, you know, fooling around, if you're touching and things like if you're even if you're naked, that does not necessarily mean we're, you're going to have sex. Like you need to communicate. It's a it's a mutually communicative process. It's about mutual connection. And so no matter what it looks like in porn or on movies, you know, slow and awkward is the way to go. And for girls too, like that you, instead of saying like, guys only want one thing, really communicating that this is your body and your choice and you get to say what happens and you get to communicate. And if there's at any point there's pressure or at any point something feels kind of scary or something just feels kind of off, that means it's not time. Like, it's just not time. And we're not talking <laughs> about masks. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so... Um, it's a new way to just say no. I know, right? <laughs> so... 
I've read about this, and I don't know if it's true or not. When boys in particular are watching a lot of porn, is it changing their expectation around sex and also their in ability to enjoy in real life sexual relationships? Is that is that something that's happening? Well, it's definitely emerging in like qualitative research and interviews. It's hard to know like on a wider scale how common that is, but we see that in like Peggy Ornstein's work and and some other qualitative work. And I certainly see it in my human sexuality classes where we, you know, anonymously survey survey the students in real time in the class. And a lot of um, the guys will say things like, I'm a little worried because I'm kind of bored like with sex with real people, but like porn still is exciting to me. Or am I going to be able to have an orgasm with another person without thinking about porn while we're having sex? So one of the things I talk about like in my TEDx talk, for example, and I talk about in my classes is like learning how to orgasm without porn is an important life skill. And just knowing that you can have sex with another person is huge. And for most people, they can sort of take porn or leave it. It's not going to become a problem. But for a small subset of people, it does become a problem. And the earlier they start it, the more likely it is to be a problem for them. And so I, I think communicating uh, that there's that potential there and connecting them to sort of voicing what these kind of warning signs are is one thing and important to do. But we also don't want to overdo it and say that, you know, if you if you see porn or you masturbate to it once, you're going to be addicted for life. Because there's a lot of discourse now about pornography addiction out there that wasn't ever really around just in the last few years or so. So I feel like there's we do need to talk to them about that potential, but we also don't want to sort of overdo the fear, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Can we can we just uh, give a shout out? You mentioned Peggy Ornstein, and she has a, a book, Girls and Sex, and another book, Boys and Sex, and they're both really fascinating to read. Very, very worth getting them. Absolutely. And I think reading them yourself and then if you're comfortable giving them to your kids to read, your teens to read is great. A great way to get those conversations going. So you touched on this earlier. You were talking about if it doesn't feel good, if it's not what you want. So let's take that to a, a different place. How, do, how and when do we talk to our teens about sexual assault? Yeah, so that is such an important topic. And I mean, I didn't even know what any of that was until I was like 24. I had no, I mean, the, the we, I, you know, of course I'd heard the word rape, but there was never really discussion about what any of that looks like. And I know now they're doing a much better job in most schools about at least, you know, addressing it. But you can start off with very young kids talking about consent and, and things like that in terms of always checking in with people. Um, and then, of course, as they're teens, I think just really focusing on that piece, like it's a community, it's, it's about communication. So you're checking in at different points along the way. And there's ways to do that that aren't, you know, awkward and you can make it kind of sexy. So that's one way to sort of 
talk about the importance of consent. Now, when it comes to actual assault, so forced sex or giving somebody alcohol to the point where they're intoxicated that they can't consent, um, that's never the victim's fault. If they have a friend, one of the things I sort of encourage is bringing up friends as the hypothetical. Like, do you have a friend? Has this happened to a friend of yours? Or, you know, if a friend ever talks about like that they felt like they didn't want to do it, but they kind of like pushed their head in a certain way or or took off their pants in a certain way and it just sort of happened, like that is sexual assault. And that's something to check in about and say that, I'm sorry that happened to you. And let's see if we can get help. Or do you want me to go with you to talk to the school nurse or the social worker about it or something? So really kind of helping our our kids be good bystanders and friends also gives a message to them that, you know, if this does happen to you, I obviously can handle that and we can talk about it. And it's so tricky, though. It's so tricky. All right. At this moment, I'm I'm thinking that people who are listening are feeling really overwhelmed. It's it, it's just such a struggle to figure out our role in this whole story, especially with the fear that goes along with what can go wrong. And now we have to add porn onto this whole thing. So, as a mom yourself, give us your best piece of advice. <laughs> My best piece of advice is to just is to not worry. Use a sense of humor really take those those opportunities for those learning, you know, those learning opportunities when you're watching movies and TV together to be like, oh my gosh, what do you think of that? Uh, or that seems like that was a nice, you know, interaction or whatever. What do you think? Or, you know, just really asking them questions and then listening without immediately responding is I think the best thing that you can do. Because what you're really trying to do is just show that you're, you're open and able to talk about it. That's way more important than making sure like, okay, we talked about porn, we talked about pleasure, <laughs> we talked about sexual assault, we talked about coercion, we talk, you know, it's way more important to just watch your reactions and to just kind of be chill about it so that they know, oh, okay, we can, maybe we can talk about this. I'm not going to give, you know, mom a heart attack because, you know, we brought up porn or I brought up that my friend was sexually assaulted. That's great. So, so much good advice. So we're going to end this with the question we ask all of our guests. What is the biggest myth about teenagers? <sighs> the biggest myth about teenagers. You know, I think the biggest myth is that they can't make their own decisions when it comes to romantic relationships and sex. Of course, we know that they're not mature enough to handle the majority of these relationships or experiences but they are for that stage of life. So we have to trust that if we give them enough information and we communicate with them, that they can make the best decisions. Now, it's not gonna be the same decisions they would have made in their 20s or 30s, but for that age, they, they are capable of making their own decisions. They're not gonna be great decisions, but <laughs> they are capable and we should respect, respect that about them. Dr. Megan Maas, thank you so much for being here with us. And actually, Stephanie and I were thinking that maybe we got an F in this course. 
But I think after you, kind of, you're, you're pivoting on the way we look at this. And I think for sure our grade just rose exponentially. So thanks for leaving us with that good feeling. And thanks for being here. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It was fun. Thanks for joining us for Your Teen with Sue and Steph. If you have any topics that you want us to talk about, let us know on our Facebook page or email editor at yourteenmag.com. Also, if you want to receive our newsletter, head on over to yourteenmag.com. Your Teen with Sue and Steph is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to executive producer Michael D'Aloya, plus producer Hannah Leach and audio engineer Eric Coltnow. If you like today's podcast, please leave us an iTunes review or send the episode to a friend. You can find more from us at yourteenmag.com, at evergreenpodcast.com, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Hi there. I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardknowpodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard note.